You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. And we're reading from John chapter 11. It is a sufficiently long reading, so get ready. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were now just seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant talking, taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Hey church, it's awesome to be with you here. Uh, If we haven't met, my name's Pat. I have the joy, as mentioned, of being uh, one of the pastors here at Sea on the Hill. And... um, I've got a bit of a frog in my throat, so apologies if I'm croaking or drinking a lot of water today. It's just been one of those weeks. But here we are in chapter 11 of John, which we had so beautifully read out to us. Uh, and it is, has been an awesome series, I think, having a look at the seven signs of John. So just to remind you why, what we're doing here, if you haven't been here, is we've been looking at seven signs through the book of John that pointed Jesus being the Messiah. And here we're finishing the series up. And basically, why are we stopping John halfway through the book of John? It's only chapter 11, it's like another nine chapters left, but you'll notice that throughout the book of John, the first 11, 12 chapters are largely focused on Jesus' ministry whilst he was here on earth, the kind of three years where he was ministering, healing people, doing a lot of things, doing a lot of teaching, and then the rest of the book is really focused on the last week of Jesus' life. And so I really encourage you that this isn't the last thing that John teaches about Jesus. He has so much more to say about the man who claimed to be God. So over summer, read the rest of the book of John. Get into it, meditate on it, uh, swim in its steps. It is an incredibly awesome book, and I'd love for you to uh, kind of commit that to your summer reading. It would be a great idea. But before we get into it today, we're going to, uh, to look at uh, Jesus yet again showing us the character of God. Because that's what Jesus' whole purpose here was on earth, to show us God. If the argument might be, hey, if, if God was real, he would have revealed himself to us. 
he has in the person and work of Jesus. And so here today, we're going to see three actions of Jesus that show us God. We're going to see Jesus waiting, Jesus speaking, and Jesus weeping. But before we get into it, please pray with me. Our loving God, uh, we're so thankful that you've brought us here today. Uh, Please be with us as we uh, look at your text, as we dive into its mysteries. Uh, Please touch our hearts, touch our actions, and may we fall more in in love with you uh, by the end of this sermon. Amen. So I'm going to kick off Jesus waiting from verse 11, chapter 1. We're going to be kind of skimming through the whole narrative because there is so much to say here. So let's just get straight into it. Now, from uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of, uh, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So, just lost my spot. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Now, for some context about where Jesus is, he's obviously not with these people in Judea, in this town of Bethany. He's likely across the Jordan, about four days' walk from where they are. It's too dangerous at this stage for him to go back to Judea because, as the disciples mentioned later in the chapter, he's going to get stoned. Already there were plans to kill him. But here, at the start of chapter 11, we're introduced to three characters who are really important, who we've never met in the Gospel of John before. That is Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Now, we don't know actually too much about these people, apart from this one really key thing. Jesus loves them. And he loves them in this really unique way. They're not just known to him. It says he loves them. He knows them. He cares for them. They're treasured to him. Now, in the story, Lazarus is sick, and they want Jesus to come and help. So they've been likely walking with Jesus for the last three years. They've seen him do incredible things to incredible people. They've seen him help rich people, poor people, blind people, lame people. Uh, He has not discriminated about who he has helped. So, of course, they want him to help them with his friend. Surely he will help them. But then what happens? Rather than getting up straight away and going and healing Lazarus, which would have been about a three-day journey, verse 6 tells us he delays himself another two days. And during this delay, Lazarus dies. Lazarus was buried. Now, even if Jesus left when he got the message, we can do the maths looking at the passage and see that he still wouldn't have made it there before Lazarus actually physically died. But it's also worth remembering that Jesus doesn't physically need to be there with people to heal them. He could have healed Lazarus with a thought or a word like he'd done to the official son, I think the second sign that we saw. So what is going on here? Here he's faced with this desperate plea from these two sisters who he loves, about a mate who he loves. And what does he do? Verse 6 tells us he stayed put and he did nothing. Jesus hears a desperate plea for help and does nothing. He delays himself. He waits. So I guess the big question is, 
why. Now, we're spending a fair bit of time in verse 6, but it's an important verse because the so in verse 6 is so important, it kind of ter- it points us to the, the whole purpose of this chapter because that so can be also used as therefore. To paraphrase, Jesus loved his friends, therefore he delayed. The purpose of Jesus waiting and not going to help Lazarus heal was for the love of his friends. That then pushes us to ask this question, doesn't it? How could this, letting a friend die, be a loving thing to do? Further, how could this, letting your friends mourn the loss of your friend, be a loving thing to do? Why didn't he do something about it? You see this tension that we're presented with at the very start of this chapter. Now, some historical context will help us kind of unravel about why Jesus delayed. Why was this a part of this narrative? See, it was a very common thought in the uh, first century, Jewish culture especially, that when you died, your soul hovered just above your body for about two or three days, and it was going to be touch and go whether your soul entered back into your body. Because resurrection was actually quite common. And this is... uh, The kind of reason for this, we think now, is because um, basically they didn't have the amazing technology that we have today to monitor vital signs of people. So often when someone's breathing became so shallow or their heart rate became hard to detect, they would be declared dead, even though they were just really sick. And there are reports of people waking up halfway through their own funeral and everybody saying they've been resurrected. So why is Jesus delayed? Jesus delayed because he wanted everybody to know that Lazarus was dead, dead. That he wasn't like these other people who just kind of raised after a couple of days. No, he was going to be dead, dead, buried, wrapped, put in his tomb, dead. He was going to have to perform the most amazing miracle because he wanted people to see even more of himself. But to do this amazing miracle, he was going to have to let one of his best friends die. Now, to be really clear, he's not letting his friends suffer because he doesn't love them. Verse 5 doesn't allow us to think that. Rather, the thing that Jesus is doing, the most loving thing that Jesus can do is show people God. And to be able to show people God, he's going to have to let them suffer. Because we need to see a bit more of his power. They needed to see a bit more of his power. And this can be a really hard truth. But here it is. God's love often allows pain and loss. God's love often allows pain and loss because God's love means doing what you must to help others see the glory of God forever. And it's often in our pain and loss that we actually see God really clearly. See, God loves, he, God's love labours and entices us, the people of God. It entices us to see him through the midst of our suffering. Such is the love of God. You see, real love, true love, like actual love, is always God-centred. It would be unloving for Jesus to provide short-term comfort for the sake of his friends. Rather, what an opportunity to show the magnificent love of God to them. But before he does this display of power, later in the chapter, we see these two amazing interactions with two women, Mary and Martha. And these interactions, in these interactions, we learn not only about the power of God, but about the character of God. 
So let's turn and look at our second point of Jesus speaking. Read with me from verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console, him, uh, to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the, in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he shall die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Now, if you've done any amount of study into the care of others, which is often dubbed pastoral care, you'll know that there's one golden rule. The golden rule is this, so build the tension. Um, the golden rule is this, never, ever, ever point to yourself. Okay, so it's like the, the classic thing is when you sit down, you're controlling someone, they've been through a traumatic experience, that reminds you of a similar experience, so the first thing you do is what? You bring up yours. And next thing you know, you're sharing your wisdom, your experiences, but the conversation all of a sudden becomes about you, and you're dealing with your stuff, and you're not dealing with their stuff. Pastoral care, one-on-one, 101, do not talk about yourself. Now, you can for sure share your wisdom and experiences, but don't make the caring session about you. Don't point to yourself. In this interaction, we see that Jesus has never done a course on pastoral care. <laughs> he has never listened to that advice. Because Martha, she's broken, she's bruised emotionally, she's fractured from the last few days. She comes to him and her cry is, Lord, if you had have been here. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't apologise for missing it. He doesn't hand her, her his like, best casserole. He doesn't do her washing. He doesn't clean her house. Now, these are all really good pastoral care moves. No. Jesus never wastes a teaching moment. And this is what Jesus does. He greets her with a theological statement. He says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And this statement's deeply theological because Martha's a Jew. And therefore, she has an understanding of the resurrection, Right? And in response, Martha displays this amazing Jewish orthodoxy. She says, yes, I share the hope that the Pharisees have that one day there will be the resurrection of the dead and God's people will be united to him. And here Jesus breaks this amazing pastoral care rule. He comes straight up against her grief by what? He directs everything straight on himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, what does he mean by this statement? There are heaps of things going on here, but let me just highlight two things. Firstly, this is another I am moment. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, you have noticed that, or if you have been here the last couple of weeks, you'll notice there's been a couple of these moments throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus used the term I am. And Nick has unpacked for us the fact that this term, this name is a title for God that God gave to Moses so that Moses might be able to tell the people of Israel exactly who he is. And here is Jesus saying, I am. I am God. 
He's being super explicit about I am God. He's saying it clearly and plain as day. And secondly, he's claiming to not only be God, but because he's God, he's claiming to be the resurrection and the life. He is the fulfilled hope that the Jewish people have been waiting for, the coming Messiah, the Son of Man, the Christ. He's going to come into this world and free it from oppression and free it from death and free God's people. You see how massive his ontological claim here is. He's saying, I am the resurrection. Basically, if I don't exist, the resurrection doesn't exist. I am the resurrection. I am the life. There can't be any other way without me. And you notice how he keeps on pointing to himself here. There's no false humility. He's not saying, oh, you know, this is one of the ways. He's saying, I am the way. There's this really frustrating misunderstanding that uh, Jesus was just this great moral teacher, that people, billions of Christians around the world have got him completely wrong. Uh, He would be turning over in his grave if we all worshipped him. This blows that out of the water. Because here is Jesus saying, clear as day, I am God. I am God. Jesus is not only saying he's got power over death, and that's true, and he proves that later in the chapter, and he's about to display it, but he's saying he is the resurrection and the life. To believe in him is to have fullness of life. And life in its fullest sense is not just existence, right? It means like conveys a fullness of life, a richness of life, a life for which you were made and we can experience fully in Christ. And that life begins when we become a Christian. It doesn't begin when we die, when we die and are resurrected. No, he's saying here that when you meet me, this is the moment of resurrection. Your new life doesn't start when you die. Your new life starts right now. It's a massive, massive claim by uh, Jesus. And he, Jesus comforts Martha in a way that we definitely shouldn't. You see, we shouldn't turn the conversation in on ourselves, but only he can do this. He points to himself because in Jesus is the, big, the greatest comfort there is, ever is. Because in him there is life. In him there is resurrection. In him there is restoration. In him there is everything that we are looking for, hoping for, and dreaming for. It is the end of suffering in Jesus. Jesus is saying to Martha that you trust me. Lazarus, trust me and knew me. One day, you guys are going to be united forever and ever, and eternity starts right now. There's this picture I absolutely love by a Melbourne-based artist named Sharon Cooper. And she's painted um, this painting. It's one of my favourites of all time. I think it's up behind me. Uh, This painting is called The Reunion. It's called The Reunion, and she says... This is painted on like the the idea of that last day, that last moment. How amazing is that picture? I just love it because it captures the reality for all those who trust in Jesus. This moment where we, we get to hug and be reunited with saints who are right now living in fullness of Christ. It's an amazing picture and this is what Jesus points to when he points to himself. Because in him is life. He delayed coming to help them so that he could point to this picture. Everybody around him who he loves would see this even fuller. But this passage doesn't end there. It doesn't end with this uh, Jesus telling Martha, this massive theological revelation. No, 
we see that Jesus backs up this massive claim with a massive miracle. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's kind of said what he's going to do and he's about to prove what he can do. But before he does that, he has this beautiful interaction with a wonderful woman named Mary. So let's pick up where we left off at verse 28 as we look at the weeping of Jesus. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him again, same as Martha, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I want to ask you potentially a bit of a triggering question, right? Can you remember the worst day of your life? It's, like a, it's a big question. And I want to pause and note here as we read because it's really easy to read the Bible like, blah, 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 Jesus was in uh, Bethany and blah, 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 he heard that Lazarus was sick and blah, 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 he did nothing about it, blah, 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 uh, you know, he's had a big theological statement, blah, blah, he weeps with Mary and Martha and blah, blah, raises uh, Lazarus from the dead, blah, blah, the Jews are angry about it, application point, blah, 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 you know, read your Bible and pray more. Like that, that, is, that is seriously how we approach the Bible sometimes. But I think it's worth seeing something here. Actually, I think it's worth feeling something here. We're reading one of the worst days slash weeks in the lives of Mary and Martha. Like this is horrible. Because when we read the Bible, we're 2,000 years removed from it. We read about these things that happen to faraway people in faraway places, in faraway cultures, and there's this natural time divide between us. And it's easy to skim through this passage without seeing the reality of what is happening here. So can you remember the worst day of your life? And I ask this question because that is what we're looking at here in the lives of Mary and Martha. You can imagine them, they're watching their brother slowly get sick. Like they are crying out for help. They're sending someone to get Jesus. Jesus doesn't arrive on time. This period of days would have gone slow for these women. If you've ever buried a family member, you know what this feels like. These days would be days that they remember everything acutely. Because that's what trauma does to us, right? It helps you remember every single detail every, every single day. I don't know about you, but I remember where I was 9-11. Most of us remember where we were at 9-11. I remember the conversation with mum and dad. I remember the special school assembly, the special classroom help. It was a big day that changed history and now whenever I even look at my phone, if it's 11 past 9, that's the first thing I think about because dates are really like important. And it's amazing I don't remember much else from that year. And it just so happens that today's date, 17th of December, is another really important date to me. Now I don't know if you remember what you were doing 17 years ago on the 17th of December, but I remember the entire day acutely. This day is so important to me, it's actually tattooed on my arm right here, the 17th of December. It was a Sunday, I was 15 years old. I remember the smell of the uh, rain in the Darwin air that morning. 
Uh, I remember the conversation slash fight that I had with my dad that morning about playing Xbox too early in the morning. Desert Storm 2, great game. Uh, We were getting ready for church and he didn't like me murdering people on the Xbox before that, so I can understand. I remember negotiating with him that I wanted to get out of helping him in the garden that afternoon uh, because I wanted to go ride motorbikes with my friends. He really hated it when I rode motorbikes, so I lied through my teeth and I said, I'm not going to ride the motorbikes, I'm just going to watch. And that's what I ended up getting to do. And I remember getting a message saying, you know, there's been an accident, you've got to come home quickly. So we started to make our way home, my younger sister and I. Um, I remember being told the story that uh, as my brother, who was helping my dad in the garden, and my dad, they cut down a tree, it had been raining, it landed on some power lines, so they got a shock, so they both jumped back, and, oh no, the, the tree's full of electricity, so we better call someone. So they called Paramwater, the local Paramwater authority. And Paramwater came, and they made the space all safe, and then they shut off the grid of power so they could move the tree, but what happened is that they shut off the wrong grid of power. So when my dad grabbed the tree, he was killed instantly. Like, I remember hearing that from my dad's best friend halfway down the street, oh, like hours from home. I remember holding my sister. I remember seeing my dad, my family surrounding, surrounding his body. I remember seeing the look on my mum's face of like, what is happening? He was 42. He was happy. He was healthy. I remember really weirdly that I had him for KK that year and all I could think about was, what does that mean? Like, what do you get your dead dad? Christmas was next Monday. I remember crying myself to sleep for 12 months. You see, death is awful. It is disruptive. It sucks. It destroys families. 17th of December today, is the anniversary of one of the worst days of my life. And why do I share this? Because I want us to see the experience that we're reading about. See, we don't know this date, but Mary and Martha, they absolutely do know this date. They remember this date. This is one of the worst days of their life. They've watched sickness overcome their brother. Possibly they've been caring for him for days and days and days. They've watched him slip into death. They've been organising a funeral and they've been doing it through thick, thick tears. Do you see this? And now we have Mary weeping at home. And in this culture, weeping was a big deal. Now we have many cultures in this room, but the larger Australian culture is that we we don't weep in front of one another. Like me crying up here is is a weird thing to do. It's really dumb. But in other cultures... Weeping after the pa- passing of someone is really important. And as I just mentioned, my dad passed away. And one of the things that happened in that, that week is that we had a group of Indigenous women come and weep with us because mum and dad worked with Indigenous women. Now, I didn't know these people. There was about 15, 20 of them. They came into our lounge room and they just bawled their eyes out with us. They stroked our face. They cuddled us. They kissed us. They lay on the floor and they wailed. It was the most amazing and cathartic experience ever. It was awesome. That's what's happening in this culture as well. 
See, even in the poorest of families in this century, you would hire a wailing woman and musicians to play music, both sombre and happy, and these women would wail and wail on behalf of this dead family. Sorry, this dead person's family. So this is why, this is where Mary is when she's mourning. And Mary, hearing Jesus is in town, she rushes to meet him, and the weeping party go with her. They suspect she's going to the tomb. And then she falls at the feet of Jesus, and what is Jesus' response to Mary? See, rather than having a theological discussion like he did with Martha, rather than kind of putting to her a question, what does he do? He joins her in her emotion. Verse 33 says this, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus cries. It's incredible. He's weeping. Just moments before, he's claiming he is God in the flesh to Martha. And here we see him crying. He said before, I am transcendent, literally without beginning or end. I know everything that has happened and everything that is going to happen. And yet here he has tears falling down his cheeks. And John makes a note that he's got this trouble and anguish in his heart. The sense in the original language is that Jesus isn't just sad, he is angry. And Jesus' deep anguish and anger stems from, I think, two places. Firstly, for one, it must have been incredibly frustrating for him to be so explicit about who he is to have proven who he is, but to have even those who are closest to him still not trust in him fully, not recognise the implications of his identity. See, Jesus has claimed to be God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's claimed to have no beginning and no end. He's responded quite literally to people's thoughts. He's done amazing things and yet, even those closest to him don't believe it. In verse 40, he says again, did I not tell you? And so Jesus is feeling the sense of frustration that those around him can't see that Lazarus' death is like sleep to Jesus. But secondly, Jesus is also deeply, deeply moved. He's led to weep because the power and his might, though it's currently being ignored, is matched only by his warmth and his tenderness. See, the world is indeed in darkness and we can't see the light. But God in his mercy has entered into that darkness as light with us. He mourns the existence of sin. He mourns the existence of suffering, of death along with us. Like, have a look at the perfection of Jesus in this episode. See, with Martha, he speaks with power, truth, confidence. I am the resurrection. Have hope in me. Have faith in me. And with Mary, love, tenderness, compassion, lamenting the existence of sin and death. And then, of course, we read that he does the most amazing thing ever. He goes up to a tomb and says, Lazarus, come out, and he does. He displays the fact that he is actually God and he does have power over death. Rebecca McLaughlin, in a great book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, it's a really good Christmas present, has this to say about this account. 
She says, how do we see Jesus through Mary's and Martha's eyes as they watch their brother walk out of the tomb? We see him as one who weeps with us in our distress, but also as the one who can call a dead man back to life. Jesus' power to raise Lazarus supports his astounding claim to Martha that he truly is the resurrection and the life. What comfort we can get from this passage. Like you couldn't think up a better imaginary figure than the real Jesus who walked this earth. You see, he is infinitely powerful, yet he is intimately loving. Every dark moment of your life, Jesus, Jesus both longs for you to know him through it and mourns with you that you're going through it. Every devastating disappointment, every crushing anxiety, Jesus wants you to see him in the midst of it. He cares about you going through it. He is crying with you and for you right now. Church, do you believe this? Jesus isn't causing your suffering or allowing it just to be indifferent to you. No, he is loving you. He is loving you whether you're struggling or doubting. Jesus is weeping with you. Now, in the latter section of chapter 11, we see this display of power is actually the tipping point for the religious leaders to decide that they're going to have to murder him for the sake of political stability. Caiaphas, the high priest, he actually says this, it is better that one man should die for the people that we as a nation, or not the whole nation, should perish. You see, he thought, the Jewish people thought that he was talking about the Jews in relation to the Roman Empire. But little did he know, he just articulated the gospel in the most amazing way. Because Jesus did go from there to die. He did go from there to die for a people, for God's nation, so they wouldn't perish. And this is what this whole series has been about. We have been looking at seven moments in the book of John that point us to who Jesus is. In John 20, 30, he says that he wrote these things down so that you might have life in his name. And we've been zooming in on some of the signs and this last sign points to the fact that he is indeed the resurrection and the life and that life is found in him. But Caiaphas has pointed out what his death and resurrection would achieve. That one man died for the consequence of the sins of every single person here who trusts in his name. Now, I don't care if you've been at church five years, five months or five minutes. Awesome to have you here. Every one of us must answer this question off the back of this series. Who is Jesus? I know that you're in one of three categories of people who I meet every Sunday morning when you're sitting here right now. So maybe you're the person, you don't call yourself Christian. You're sitting here because you're invited by that really lovely but slightly intense but slightly annoying friend, family member maybe. And you're sitting there awkwardly in this, you're doing that laugh together. Uh, you don't call yourself Christian. Maybe you've kind of come to the whole series and you found it pretty interesting, but there's still some objections you can't quite get past. Awesome to have you here. Welcome, keep coming back. Maybe you've just started coming back to church. I meet a lot of these people. You're like, you don't know what it is, but you've decided to call yourself a Christian and here you are. And it's like you're on the outside of the social club 
you're trying to figure out what are the rules, what's the lingo, what's the dress code, seems to be beige this morning. Uh, and you're kind of sitting here going, you want more of Jesus, but you don't know exactly how to, how to get that. I say again, awesome to have you here. Welcome. Keep coming back. We love having you here. Lastly, maybe you're a Christian. You know and love Jesus. You know his love for you and you love him back, however imperfectly you do that. You know what it is to be alive in him, free from your sin, saved by his grace. You live in the newness of life and that's a miracle. But as we all know and feel that sometimes this objective truth that we are in fact saved in Jesus can feel really far from reality. Maybe that's been a year. Maybe you've been walking on rainbows and this has been the best year of your life and nothing bad has happened to you at all. But the reality is, for most people in this room, that has not been the case. We've had moments of doubt. We've had moments of suffering. We've had moments of stress. Moments of asking, is Jesus really worth it at all? What you may have noticed through this series is there's an invitation every single week to every single person in that category. Whether you call yourself Christian or not, whether you've been walking the road and you've got some doubts or not, there is an invitation to you here from Jesus and he's saying this, come to me, abide with me. That means like, just be with him. And he's saying, trust in me for the salvation of your soul. The reason that John wrote this down is that we might all know whoever we are, the unstoppable, never changing, always and forever love of God. I'm going to pray. If you'd like to bow your heads, close your eyes and pray with me. And if you're comfortable, whether you're one of those people that needs to recommit your life to Jesus, maybe you want to find out about him for the first time. Maybe you're the Christian who's had just a crap, crap year and you want me to be specifically noticing you and pray for you. I would love to do that. Uh, No one's going to peek. Well, maybe they will, but who cares? Uh, Stick up your hand and um, let's pray. Awesome. Let's come to our Father. God, you have revealed yourself through the book of John in the most incredible ways. Lord, when we see you turn water into wine, when we see you heal an official son, when we see you help the the invalid walk on the Sabbath, when we see you heal the eyes of the blind, the many miracles that you did, Lord, we still let our doubt our frustrations and our troubles get in the way. Father, I really pray right now, heal our unbelief. Lord, we know that you wrote these things down that we might be able to have fullness of life and trust in your name. We have seen in these scriptures that are true, that you can literally command a dead person to walk out of the tomb, yet why do we doubt? Father, help us to not doubt. Please change our hard hearts. Help us to focus less on ourselves and more on you. God, please restore and redeem us who don't know you. Please restore and redeem us those who have betrayed you. God, may we come to your throne, recognising your grace, recognising our sinfulness and giving our life afresh to you this morning. God, we love you and we want to serve you. Help us to do that because it is all of you 
and none of us that can help us do that. By the power of your Holy Spirit, please empower us to live and love and serve you. It's in the mighty, powerful name and your great Son we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.